Hey everyone, my name is Russell, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm going to sit today, not because I'm channeling my inner rabbi or anything like that. Um, I ran four and a half miles with my wife yesterday in solidarity. Yeah, she's training for a marathon, uh, or a half marathon I should say. Uh, she filmed a wedding on Friday, got two hours of sleep, filmed a wedding on Saturday, and she needed to run four and a half. So I was like, you know what? I ran three miles back in college, I can do it. No, my left leg, seriously, I cannot take steps. It is in pain. So I'm going to sit and uh, be solemn. Um, thanks so much for being here. As Nathan said, next week is our official launch, which is so exciting. Uh, I was just reflecting this past week. This time last year, if you were part of the community, we were just starting Brooklyn Table at the Recovery House of Worship. And just to think, there was like 20 of us, maybe, um, what God has done in a year. I know many of you, I know many of your stories. It's just really powerful, and I'm really humbled um, at what God is doing at Hope Brooklyn, what he's gonna continue to do. So be here next week and spread the word. Uh, it's gonna be a really exciting day. Uh, bring your friends, bring your colleagues, and let's party. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, we are in our series, Mirrors, and it's actually the last Sunday of our series. Uh, the idea behind Mirrors, this is, this is the series that corresponds to the church's season of Lent. And Lent are the 40 days that lead up to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And it parallels with the 40 days that Jesus was tempted in the desert by Satan to prepare for his ministry. The big idea with mirrors is that humans are primarily lovers. We are governed by what we love. And worship is essentially turning our heart turning our loves towards something or someone. Christians say that in the season of Lent, we realize that we actually aren't loving God the way we thought we were. And so for these 40 days, what we do is we enter into a process called repentance. Repentance has four steps. We name the things in our lives that we are going after instead of God. We confess those things. We fast from them. That means we go without, we forego them. And then we replace them with kingdom liturgies. We replace them with habits, patterns of behavior that turn our hearts back toward Jesus and the gospel story. And we're actually on the last Sunday, the last idol we're gonna talk about today. And the idol we're gonna discuss today in preparation for Easter is justice. Justice and our violation of it. Now, I know I just say that and immediately tension rises in the room. I know it. You're scared, I'm scared because we're exhausted. We're exhausted by the way this conversation has been had um, in our society. We're exhausted by society's structuring of this conversation. Because the way society structures a conversation about justice or injustice inevitably uh, leads to polarization, it leads to division, uh, fragmentation, a lot of name calling, a lot of shaming, and just raw, visceral anger. Now, when I ask my question, why is the case? Why does, why does it seem like when we have this conversation about justice, forms of injustice, that it immediately sort of devolves into this polarized um, way? I think, again, my man Stanley Hauerwas puts it perfectly. And he says this. He says, Americans are unable to conceive of their identity outside of a war, which is a really compelling phrase. He says, at the core of an American's identity. What soothes us is to be in a battle. Um, so like, you know how babies, 
they, they, I mean, I don't know this, you parents know this, but apparently babies, you swaddle them to keep their arms down because that soothes them when they're newborns. Um, and then when you like release it, their arms go up in the air. There was an Instagram video I just saw the other day. I don't know, did y'all see that? It was really funny where they were like putting, um, all I do is win, win. You know, I'm not even going to go into it. Um, that was bad, that was bad. But like babies are soothed with this, but keeping their arms down. In a sense, war is what soothes Americans. We like to fight. We, we know how to make sense of ourselves in a battle. And that's both physical and social. I mean, obviously there's countless lists of wars that we've been in, revolutionary, which gave birth to this nation. Civil, World War I, World War II, but also the war on poverty, the war on drugs, the war on crime. When we wanna get something done, we start a war. Now, the question for us today as it relates to the church is how did justice become an idol? Well, I think the first response I could say is we accepted the conditions of the conversation. We accepted the framework that this wartime structuring infiltrated the church and, and sort of um, impelled our conversation forward, impelled our dialogue. And it's really fascinating when you look at the history of the church in America, and obviously that's kind of unfair to say church. There are many churches, there are many denominations, there are many strands of theology, but when you look at sort of the, the majority church, which is we could call evangelicalism, this split, this bifurcation happened in the 1920s in a famous trial you might know of called the Scopes Monkey Trial. Now, it's, too, it's outside the, the scope of our conversation today to go into the details of it. Suffice it to say, from that trial, before that trial, the church kind of had a balanced approach to justice. At that trial, it split to the religious right and the religious left. Now, you know you're doing something right if both sides are angry at you, right? And actually, just this has nothing to do with the sermon. I just found this so fascinating, I wanted to share it with you all. So the first church, right, the first and second century, they lived in the Roman Empire. And there's this book called Destroyer of the Gods by a guy named Larry Hurtado. And he noticed five distinctives about the first church. Five distinctives. And it's fascinating because if you took those distinctives and transposed them on the 21st century, some of them, uh, in 21st century America, and I can tell by your eyes, we already put them up. <laughs> but some of them... Um, the, the, the right would be like, all right, they'd cheer it on and some would be the left. So first, the first church was multi-ethnic and multinational, which is something that the, Roman, the Greco-Roman didn't see. You, you stuck with your own. But the first church was racially diverse. So of course, the left cheers for that one. The secondly, they were against infant exposure. Infant exposure was a very common practice in the Greco-Roman times, where if you gave birth to a baby, um, with deformities or a child that you didn't want, you could just sort of leave it, you could just abandon it. Well, the first church, they, they took those babies in and, and they, they discontinued that practice among their own. So of course the right cheers for that one. They disallowed men from having sex with anyone other than their wives. Um, just so you know, the sexual ethic of the Greco-Roman society was such that a man could have sex with anyone below his social status female, and even having sex with children. That was very common in the first century. Um, but the woman could only have sex with her husband, right? Go figure. Um, the Christian said, sorry guys, you can only have sex with your wives now. Um, and 
uh, that if you did commit adultery, that the woman could divorce you, which was also uncommon. Women didn't have the power to divorce their husbands. So of course the left and all the feminists are like, yeah, all right. But then the Christians said, actually you can't have sex with anyone unless you're married to them. And so the right's like, there we go. And finally, the fifth distinctive is they practiced a radical form of financial redistribution of wealth. And it was internal to the church. It's not, it wasn't a form of Marxism. It wasn't everyone was financially equal, but it was that those who had more, it was expected that they would take care of the, the brothers and sisters who had less. And I, I, again, this has nothing to do with our sermon today. I just find that so fascinating that the church, the ethics that guide the church is something that both the right and the left probably, they, they agree with us in some parts and probably disagree with, with us on some parts. And that means we're probably doing something right. But what you saw, all right, getting back to, aside, aside, getting back to the 1920s, what you saw with the, the Scopes Monkey Trial is that the church's understanding of justice bifurcated, and it gave rise to the religious right and the religious left. Now, I'm usually not a fan of um, simplistic aphorisms, but in this case, I think it helps us conceptualize what's going on. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He was asked by another Jew, what's the greatest commandment? And the Jews had lots of laws, lots of codes that govern their life. And he said this, he said, the greatest commandment, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, Israel knew that. That was called the Shema. That was a very important prayer um, that if you were a Jew, you were expected to say every day. That made sense. But then Jesus went a step further and he goes, and the second is just like the first. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. Both and. You love God and you love others. Both are the gospel. Both are God's form of justice. Simplistically, in the 1920s, in the church in America, it split. And the left focused on loving others, and the right focused on loving God. But you need both. You need both. So, again, take a deep breath today. All right, we're gonna examine justice from God's perspective. And I guess I should say one other thing before we get, on, get going. Um, the first church in Roman society they lived a certain way, not because they were trying to influence Roman social policy. They weren't trying to make change to the empire. Let Caesar be Caesar. This is who we are. So as I'm talking today about, um, in my estimation of what the gospel has to say about justice and injustice, what God is calling us, this is not me suggesting anything for American social policy, not at all. This is about the church. This is about the church. Social policy is a conversation for another day, but this is who God is calling us to be and us to be about. All right, so, um, and, and just if you're interested in these topics too, two books that I referenced a lot for this uh, sermon today is Generous Justice by Tim Keller um, and a book called Old Testament Ethics and the People of God by Christopher Wright. So if you want other um, recommendations, come see me after service, I'd love to, to give them. But if you... Look at the idea of justice in the Old Testament and Israel's scriptures. There are two key words that you see everywhere. The words are this, mishpat and tzadikah. Mishpat and tzadikah. Mishpat is used 422 times. 
uh, in the Old Testament, tzedakah is used 206. And many times they're paired together. You see them in the same sentence. Uh, one example would be this, Jeremiah, uh, the prophet Jeremiah in about the sixth century BC. He says, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice, mishpat, and righteousness, tzedekah, in the land. Now, interesting for our purposes, we read that and we immediately see the prophecy of Jesus, that in the coming king, in Israel's Messiah, he would be the one who brings together both mishpat, justice, and tzedekah, righteousness, for all of Israel. So if you look at the idea, if you look at mishpat, uh, the, the best definition I can give, it's one's legal right, one's due, it, it is what one is owed by being an Israelite, by being a human. It's what they're due. Uh, and, and God has an expanded understanding of mishpat, of justice. So he says this in Deuteronomy 18. This shall be the priest due. This shall be the priest mishpat from the people. From those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder, the two jowls, and the stomach. What's he saying? He's saying, if you're not giving financially to the local church, you're committing injustice against me. That was meant to be a joke to try to, you know, okay, all right, well, all right, got it, going on. But he's extending this idea of injustice, of what it means, of, of what people are due. Now, generally, when you read the Old Testament, mishpat, one's right, one's legal right, one's due, it surrounds four main groups of people. Tim Keller calls them the vulnerable quartet. And they are these, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. When you talk about mishpat in the Old Testament, you usually see it around these four, one of these four. So you have verses like Zechariah 7, 9 through 10. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice, true mishpat. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. Isaiah 117 says, learn to do good, seek justice, seek mishpat, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. You always see, generally see, mishpat surrounding these four groups. Now, why? Why is that the case? Well, it has to do with the way that Israel's political, social, economic life was structured. So in the ancient Near East, uh, societies were feudal in nature. It was feudalism. So you had your... Your king at the top, oh man, I haven't studied feudalism in a while. King, <laughs> prince, proconsul, vassal, knight, I don't know, whatever. But you had like these stratas of people, of roles. Israel society was not feudal. It was different from the rest of the surrounding cultures. Israel was tribal. It was, it was centered not around people, it was centered around groups. So first you had the tribes, you had the 12 tribes of Israel the 12 sons of Jacob. And each tribe was apportioned a certain amount of the land when they, when they inherited the promised land. Each tribe got a certain amount of the land. And then the tribes were subdivided into clans. And then the clans were subdivided into families. So the family unit, and then wider, the, the, the clan unit, and then wider, the tribal unit, is what structured Israel society. Now, when you look at those four groups, the vulnerable quartet, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, the poor, in some way, they are um, 
powerless in that system. They've lost their family. They've lost their land. In some way, they are vulnerable and therefore unprotected by Israel's social, economic, political system. But God seems to say throughout all of scripture, these four still have rights among you. They have rights. So in one example, in Leviticus 19.34, God says, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. What you see, and especially in relation to justice, mishpat for these four groups, is that God is constantly trying to expand Israel's understanding of family. He's constantly trying to expand their understanding of who's their kin. And when he can't expand it because they wouldn't understand, the trump card is because I am the Lord. You know, like you ask your parents growing up of why. And they're like, because I said so, because I'm the parent. There are some instances where God's like, because this is who I am. I am the Lord. Therefore, this is how we act. This is what it means to be part of my people. And when, another fascinating thing is when you look at the Old Testament, God is constantly introduced as um, the defender of the vulnerable. So one example, Psalm 68. God, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. When I introduce myself, I say I'm Russell. Um, husband of Anna, pastor of Hope Brooklyn, right? Like that's how I'd introduce myself. God introduces himself many times by associating himself with the vulnerable quartet, which is super fascinating, guys. In the ancient world and in the modern world, gods were associated with the powerful, with the winners of society, right? Only the Judeo-Christian God associates himself with the losers of society. Only the Judeo-Christian God says, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm the father of the fatherless. I'm, I'm the husband of the widows. I'm the protector of the oppressed. That's who God associates himself with. So mishpat is one's legal right, one's due. Tzadikah, on the other hand, it can be translated justice, but many times it's translated righteousness. And by righteousness, it really means rightness, to do right toward another, generally referring to right and just relationships, both with God and others. So one example, Genesis 44, after the 12, the 11 brothers of Jacob, they sold Joseph into slavery, into Egypt. And they don't know, basically the story goes on, Joseph becomes really powerful in Egypt and there's a famine and so they go to receive bread and grain and they're talking to Joseph and they don't realize it. But Judah says, what can we say to my Lord, to Joseph? What can we speak How can we clear ourselves? How can we make right ourselves? How can we establish tzadikah? Because we broke the relationship. There is no tzadikah. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Here we are then, my Lord's slaves, both we and also the one in whose possession the cup has been found. He's saying we didn't act with tzadikah. We broke the relationship. So Keller, in order to help us understand mishpat and tzadikah, he basically says this way. Tzadikah is primary justice. Tzadikah is to treat others and to treat God well. Mishpat is rectifying justice. So when things go wrong, it puts them right. Simplistically, the left has pursued mishpat, rectifying justice, restoring broken systems. The right has pursued tzadikah, right relationships with God and individuals. But God 
is attempting to create a people in Israel who embody both the mishpat and the tzedakah of God. Or as Christopher Wright says, God's purpose in creating Israel was to create a new community of people who in their social life would embody those qualities of righteousness, peace, justice, and love that reflect God's own character and, God, and were God's original purpose for humanity. God is a God of both tzedakah and mishpat. And it's everywhere throughout the Old Testament. He constantly is trying to create Israel in his image. And the people who, um, through their economics, through their, through their culture, through their politics, are treating one another and giving one another their right, their due, as those made in his image. But something else you realize when you read the Old Testament. The Jewish people never achieve the standard. Never. Israel fails to honor God's mishpat and tzedakah at every step of the road. You read the prophets. If you read one, you're pretty much reading all of them. Because the prophets are different voices that God has raised up throughout uh, Israel's historical period. And they're essentially their diatribes on how Israel's failing on how they are not honoring Mishpat. Mishpat is used 145 times in the prophet, Sadekah 45. And generally they're around verses like this. Isaiah 115. This is the start of Isaiah's 66 chapter book. You know if it's starting this way, we're in trouble. We're in for a long book. But he says, when you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Your hands are full of blood. There is a standard, God says to Israel. I have a mishpat, I have a tzadikah, and you can't keep it. Your hands are full of blood. Now, I want to posit today that that is exactly the gift that the church can bring to the conversation. That recognition of our bloody hands is the key. The story goes, y'all heard me talk about G.K. Chesterton before. He was a, a Christian and a journalist who lived in London uh, at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, he was a brilliant man, a very witty, witty writer. And um, the story goes that uh, the, the Times, the London Times, they sent out a question. They sent out a question to all the who's who's of English society, um, to the lords, to the business leaders, to the journalists, and they wanted to populate an op-ed piece. They wanted to, to populate an op-ed piece. And the question they were asking is, what's wrong with the world? In your estimation, oh brilliant one, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton famously sent back this reply and he said, to your question, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. And that's the gift the church brings to the conversation. See, it's inevitable that when we start having a conversation about forms of injustice, it will be impossible to have it without what immediately following? Shame. Shame immediately rises up. And you know what we need more of in this world? Shame. <laughs> Said no one ever. <laughs> and yet, friends, that might be exactly what I'm saying today. Go with me. I might be saying that the gift that the church brings to the conversations about what's wrong with the world 
is our relationship to our shame, is our recognition of bloody hands. Because to talk about justice in a society as a Christian is first to see all the ways that I am a violator of it and that it's so complex and so worked into the fiber of this world that I'm ignorant of all those ways too. To talk about economic exploitation is to know that I buy clothes from stores that probably utilize sweatshop labor in some capacity, but I do it because they're cheap. That's all I can afford. To talk about privilege is to know that Syrians were bombed by their own people this past week. I feel it, I mourn it, I pray for it, and then I go to bed and I wake up the next morning feeling better. Grateful I don't live in Syria. It's also to know that just this morning there was a bombing in an Egypt Coptic church that killed 25 and left 60 wounded. To talk about privileges to know that I get to curate my own newsfeed, scrolling and reading whatever angle of the news I want. To talk about housing is to know that I can afford a higher rent and therefore am a part, a small part, but a part of the gentrification process, which is displacing those who can't afford those rents and most of them people of color. But I'm still paying exorbitant amounts of rent. To talk about sexual trafficking is to know that for many years I perpetuated that system. I contributed to the lives of women being stolen, drugged, and raped by watching internet pornography. And my brain was addicted to it. Studies are just now coming out showing how porn affects the brain just like heroin. And that will therefore be a cross I'm gonna have to bear for the rest of my life because I have those moments of extreme bouts of temptation. That's gonna be Anna and I. To talk about that is to talk about the complexity of the situation. To talk about racial reconciliation is to know that I am the inheritor. I didn't choose it, but I'm the inheritor of a privileged position and an ideology which has exported it globally, which equates skin color to moral categories. It's the world we live in. And it's to know that I'm part of a church that in some parts provided theological justification for it. And I didn't even know it for years. See, it's also to talk about racial reconciliation is to talk about all the ways that really no one speaks up about injustice committed against Asian Americans. And it's to know all the ways that in our current day, many whites are being made the butt of jokes and scapegoated for deep complexities, both justified and unjustified. Like to talk about injustice at all is almost like if you really want to talk about it, if you really want to sit under it, is to release the waters of shame that just flood us. And so our bodies survive. What do we do? We, we shut it off, right? When there's extreme trauma to the body, you lose a limb or something, your body shuts it off such that you don't feel it. You go into shock. That's what we do. Because if we really want to talk about it, immediately I am indicted. I am indicted. There's blood on my hands. There's blood on your pastor's hands. And I feel the deep shame of it. And everyone's angry. And no one can do anything right. Because it's a war mentality. It's us versus them. It's perfectly right or completely wrong. Unwilling to acknowledge that all of us, all of us, are those who have been wounded by the brokenness of this world, and we are those who have done the wounding. We're both, both and. But I step in and society says, oh, you, Christian, you failed most of all. And I say, yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. 
The world does not know mishpat or tzadikah. I don't know it. Like Israel, I failed God. I failed him. I failed him in being a reflection of his justice to the world. So the church accepts the charge of being the worst violators of justice. We stand and we feel the shame of a broken world. The question's asked, what's wrong with the world? And we say, we are, we are. And that's our gift to the conversation. Because what do we do then? What do we do? What's the kingdom practice that follows this recognition of utter brokenness, this recognition of bloody hands? Lament. Lament. I know it's a word that might sound foreign to some of us. Lament defined by Sun Chang Ra, uh, who wrote a book called Prophetic Lament. He says this way, lament is a communal expression to God of overwhelming sorrow, a complaint of intolerable injustice and a prayerful plea that God would intervene and restore shalom, healing, and reconciliation. And for those who don't know, shalom means peace, but it's much deeper than peace. In our our, um, purview, peace is the absence of violence, but it's the other way around. Peace is what's real. Violence is an aberration on it. Peace is total wholeness, total complete wholeness. And it's it's a prayerful plea that God would intervene and restore shalom. Lament are the hysterical sobs we bring to God at how broken the world is, at how broken I am, at how I contribute in breaking the world and in how I am broken by the world. I can't see right from left, up from down. I can't make sense of it. Lament is that it's broken, God, that all is not well, that evil is real, that injustice prevails. And lament is something many arms of the American church has avoided. In uh, Ra's book, he looks at the list of the top 100 songs sung in, in churches um, in 2012, the top 100 songs. And only five of the 100 could honestly be categorized as lament songs. Why? The, the other 95 are, are triumph songs, victory songs, which is important, but why is that the case? Why are we afraid to lament? Um, and I think my friend Dan hits the nail on the head. So back in the past, in, in the, this last summer, uh, the week that uh, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were killed, uh, I don't know if you remember, but it was, there was opinions flying everywhere. Everyone was angry, us first them. And my friend Dan, um, who's a Christian, He had a Facebook post and he says this. He goes, friends, it's perfectly fine to lament the tragic deaths of people wherever, however they died. When did lamenting the sadness that envelops our world and our relationships require narrow political alignment? Who took away our God-given call to see correctly? Why can't people, especially people of faith, decry violence and injustice in all its forms, wherever it is found? How are we to live in a world or raise children in a world in which lamenting, what can only be lamented, becomes choosing a side in an endless self-perpetuating failure of imagination? Be free, all. Be free and lament, for it may be the only way we'll learn to see correctly again. 
What's he saying? He's saying we avoid lament. I avoid lament. Because when I truly lament the pain in this world, it causes me to remember my place in the gospel story. I avoid lament because I don't want to remember my role in this story. It's not a very glorious role. I don't want to remember. I am ashamed of my role in this story and I have forgotten my shame. And lament helps me to see correctly again by remembering my shame. See, I see us versus them. Lament says, in fact, it's Jesus versus all. Lament says that Bernie and Donald are standing side by side saying, if there's any hope for either of us, it's found in that cross. That's what lament says. See, I see others' bloody hands. Lament says, look at your own. I see one side is human and the other is the enemy. Lament says, sadly, you're all God's enemy. You're all, there's no hope for any of you. I don't remember. Lament causes me to remember that I am the one who crucified Jesus. I did it. I put God's son up on the cross and you know what? I laughed as I did it. I was glad. Lament causes me to remember just how much I did to my creator. And I feel the shame. I feel it. And how much I'm not only doing to my creator, but I'm doing to my creator's children, my creator's world. I feel that. And I avoid lament because I don't want to remember. I don't want to see the blood. I don't want to hear the cries. I don't want to feel the shame. But friends, if we refuse lament, we actually cut ourselves off from the fundamental task that makes us a Christian. There's one thing that makes us a Christian, one thing. You know what it is? To beg for forgiveness. The only thing that makes us a Christian, the first thing is that we look at the one we crucified and say, please forgive me. There's blood on my hands. If there's any hope, it's in you. See, if the story of the murdered God means anything, it surely means that we must mourn and lament violence and racism and injustice everywhere, especially and firstly, the violence and racism in ourselves. And if somehow our lamenting death and destruction is not allowed, then we do not understand the story of Jesus. Then our imagination has been conditioned more by the American narrative, premised on an us versus them framework, than by Christ. Friends, to be a follower of Jesus means I must first learn all the ways I am broken, I am racist, I am a murderer. But to be a follower of Jesus is to confess all of these unspeakably heinous faults, not only lodged into the very marrow of my being, but the very marrow of the world. And hear the one I murdered, who is now alive, look at me and say, and you are forgiven. You too are forgiven. You're free to go. You're free to go and ask forgiveness from those you've committed injustice against. You're free to go receive forgiveness from those who have wronged you. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday that Christians celebrate where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now that symbolism is very rich because Israel held that their king Jerusalem is the the city of the kings, of Israel's kings. And their king, the Messiah, when he came to save, 
When he came to save them finally, he would come in on a donkey. And so we celebrate on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, when Jesus rode in Jerusalem on a donkey and everyone shouted, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest, as we sang. And they shouted it with joy and with triumph because their king came to save them. Hosanna means save me. Save me, please. Save me, save me, please. They shouted with joy, thinking Jesus was on their team. And Jesus sorrowfully, I like to imagine, sorrowfully was writing and saying, I am gonna save you, but you have no idea how I'm gonna do it. You are my beloved, but right now you're my enemies. And I've got to expunge the guilt. To cry Hosanna, to cry save me, save me please, is to see the world correctly. That there is no mishpat and tzadikah outside of the cross of Jesus. This is why the gift Christians bring is our recognition of our shame. Because if we're gonna be honest in the world, we all have that shame. The world is broken. The world is broken. And even Christians, even the church, we cannot repair it. If there is any hope, if there's any justice, if there's any righteousness, it only comes from that cross and the one who died on it. That's the only hope we have. It's the only hope we have. And we throw ourselves at it. The one we put up on the cross, we throw ourselves at it again and again and say, save me, save me, please. Save us, save us, please. But when the crucified Jesus, who you crucified, is put in the center of your vision, you recognize that in some way, our pursuit of justice, our zeal, or our indifference toward it, our callousness has been idolatrous. We failed. But then you hear his voice, the voice that now lives. And I don't wanna get ahead in the story. That'll come next week. But you hear his voice, the voice that now lives, speak to you, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. The blood is on your hands, yes. I forgive you. I'm alive. You can't kill me. The greatest injustice the world has ever seen has been committed. You committed it. You committed it against me. And I don't hold it against you. I don't hold it against you. Now come be with me. You're free. You're free to go and forgive. Forgive all for everything. To receive forgiveness for everything. You're free to go pursue reconciliation. You're free to go pursue peace. You're free to go work toward mishpat and tzadikah, even knowing that you're gonna fail and stumble as you do it. Even knowing that it's not gonna come through your hands, you're still free to do it because that's the kingdom I brought in. The world being fixed is not up to you. We lament, friends, to remember the story. We don't want to remember because it's a painful process. But if there's any hope for us being truthful, for us being Christians, it's gonna come from remembering because that's when the grace of God absolutely blows us over. The church, we are an advocate for the peaceful kingdom. We are the advocate for social justice. We work to fix, not because we think we're going to fix the world, but because that's who our God is. That's what he's called us to do. 
And so therefore we pursue justice because this is the kingdom God is bringing to pass. But none of us are there because we will never deserve it. We're there because Jesus has invited us. Therefore we're free. We're free to work, to repair the world, to restore shalom, knowing it's not gonna come through our hands, knowing that we're still gonna be perpetrators of violence still sometimes. But the gift that we have, the gift the church has, is when we do perpetrate violence in some various way, when we do feel that shame, we get to ask for forgiveness. We're not afraid of it. We're not afraid of it because the only one who has the power to destroy us or give us life has forgiven us. Therefore, we're free to step under the shame and to pursue shalom. And the last thing I want to say about lament is that lament is not the end. It's the beginning. It's the beginning. And so in just a minute, uh, we're going to have a member of the community come up and bring us to the table. Before we do, three things I want to invite us to today. Three things as I've been praying um, about today. The kingdom liturgy this week to prepare us for Easter are lament psalms. Many don't know this, but actually roughly a third to a half of the psalms in the Psalter are lament. They are expression of intolerable injustice and pain. Um, So in the, the Lenten liturgies, I list some of them. Go read them. And just so you know, um, uh, the Psalms are Israel's prayer book and they're sung. Israel sings the Psalms, which I find so beautiful. Um, we look in our own history at some of the greatest lament songs are the spirituals that came out of the black community during the time of slavery. Uh, lament is to be sung. So in your room with no one listening, sing out the lament Psalms. Sing them out. Also, uh, you were given a card on the way in. Um, Hope Brooklyn, obviously justice is important to us because it's important to God. And we know it doesn't rest on us. Therefore, we can pursue it with joy, but it is important. Um, We have a group of people, a social justice team, who are really passionate about getting involved in the neighborhood, about listening to the neighborhood, listening to Brooklyn, um, and praying, discerning how God has equipped us. Because every church can't do everything, but we can work towards something. Um, And so if you wouldn't mind filling that card out and then dropping it in the generosity box in the back. You put your name on it. It's just a couple questions. Uh, we want to know what you're passionate about. We want to know um, what line of work you're in. And, and uh, we'll get it to the social justice team. They'll pray and we'll have more information. But then finally, um, I want to challenge us to something today. Uh, many of you all know Recovery House of Worship. Uh, this time a year ago, we started meeting in their space. They allowed us to meet uh, for free. They allowed us to meet for free in their space, which doesn't happen in New York. We had our baptism there uh, a couple months back. They are a phenomenal church in Brooklyn that do so much. Their aim, their vision is to reach recovering addicts. And so their evangelisms, they go to AA and NA meetings and they meet people and they preach the gospel uh, and they disciple them. So their vision is toward recovering addicts. We're gonna start partnering with them, which is really exciting. Uh, there'll be more information to come, but what it's gonna, uh, um, it's gonna be two things, essentially. Once a month, we're gonna go to their Saturday morning soup kitchens and help serve and be a part of the community and get to know them. Um, and Steph Cousins is gonna give all that information to us, so be on the lookout for that. But also, I wanna start raising money for them. I do. 
Um, as I think about the way God has equipped us, we are a church of means. We are. And part of, again, distinctive number five of the first church was a redistribution of wealth, realizing how God has equipped us so as to join the body in the work he's doing. They reach recovering addicts. Consequently, these are people who, their congregation is primarily those who are just trying to get their lives back together. Um, Tithes can be low to support the work they're doing. And so today the challenge is this. I wanna raise $2,000. I know it's a bold goal, but we have about 70 people in here. If everyone gave 30 bucks, we'd be over that goal. I'm not asking everyone to give 30 bucks. And if this is your first time here, please don't feel obligated to give, though I do invite you to. Um, But for whatever amount God has put on your heart to join in the work he's doing, I wanna invite you to listen. And I know it might make you feel a little uncomfortable. This whole sermon's been about making us feel uncomfortable. Figure out why that is. Listen, listen. God, as we said earlier, is such a God of joy and grace and forgiveness. He's not a God of shame. We feel the shame to remember our place in the story. But then once we feel it, we recognize the invitation of his love. He is all love, all mercy. And so I wanna do our part. And as we've been praying, I feel God calling us into deeper levels of partnership, financial partnership and partnership of people with the work he's doing in the community. So there are a couple ways to give. Essentially, uh, on the next slide, all the, the, the main four, Venmo, text, online, just put the memo our house. So if you text the number, just put our how in it. Venmo, just put our how in the memo. And everything we raise, I hope we raise more than 2,000, will go to our how. And I hope it's the first time of many that we get to support our brothers and sisters in the work they're doing in the community.